not really my thing. Putting my fairy lights all over my preach. <laughs> Good evening. Um, incident is the technical term we're using. If anyone asks, I was stopping a mugger. Um, <laughs> it's not true, but if anyone asks, that's what we're doing. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pray again, and then um, we'll get started. Father, I thank you that you give us a new identity in you. You don't just leave us as we are, but you come to us and you change us and you proclaim things over us and yours is the only opinion that matters. So we thank you that when you look at us, you see Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that for people here tonight that your, you will, your spirit will fall on people. I pray that people will, be, uh, will hear more from you and be revealed uh, more of you tonight. Amen. So, um, first things first, I've got a pop quiz for you. It's a simple one. It's a simple question. When did World War II end? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> uh, when did World War II end? It's not Close. August 1945, yes. Um, you may have heard that... Uh, you know, uh, earlier this month we had the 70th anniversary of VE Day, which is Victory in Europe Day. It's also the same day as Emma's birthday, that's why I remember it. Um, <laughs> but in Japan actually didn't surrender until August. And so World War II actually ended then in August in 1945. Um, but the story doesn't actually end there. I don't know if you realise this, but war doesn't work in real life like it works in films. If you... if big leader surrenders, it doesn't necessarily immediately trickle down um, to everyone immediately. Um, Hiro Onoda, that's the correct pronunciation, was a soldier stationed in the mountains on Lubang Island, which is in the Philippines. He was stationed there in 1944. And when Japan surrendered in 1945, no one told Hiro, no one told his squad. The first they heard that the war was over was in October, where they found a leaflet that had been dropped by the Allies telling them that Japan had surrendered. Um, and that they should come down. Onoda, quite understandably, thought that the leaflet was Allied propaganda and ignored it. He carried on fighting the war for Japan as a guerrilla, taking shots when he could, sabotaging the locals when he could, fulfilling his mission as much as he could by himself. He was eventually found by an explorer, a Japanese explorer, who found him. He said he was after uh, three things, two of, one of which was Bigfoot and the other one was Hiro Onoda. Um, and he found him and said, look, the war, the war is over, the war's done. He didn't believe him either. Thankfully, the explorer wasn't willing to give up, so he went home and told the Japanese government, who had to track down Hiro's former commander, who now worked in a bookshop in Japan, and flew him to the island, flew him to Lubang Island, found Hiro again, and officially relieved him of duty. Hiro Onoda surrendered and returned home on the 9th of March, 1974. He had been fighting a six-year war for 30 years. Now, it seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems ridiculous to go on fighting a war that's over. So why do so many Christians find themselves in that situation today, every day of their lives? In many ways, we can be just like Onoda, fighting by ourselves as part of a never-ending war against the pressures of the world, against the temptations of the devil, and against ourselves. That voice in your head that tells you you can't. And the problem with fighting a never-ending war is that eventually everyone loses. Some of us will have lost recently. Some of us will have lost last night. Some of us will have lost today. 
For some of you, coming to a service with a talk titled, I am victorious, is painfully ironic, because when you get down to it, you just feel like a loser. Thankfully, God has never been in the business of leaving people where they are. And tonight, I pray God's going to bring hope into your hearts and your spirits, because tonight, I'm going to talk about how our identity in Christ is one of victory. And I think the best way for us to do that, first of all, is to get some perspective. If we want to understand our identity as victorious in Christ, then it follows that we need to understand Christ's victory. So we're going to talk about that for a bit, and then um, we're going to just quickly jump to the Old Testament and do a bit of a case study. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Um, If you're not entirely sure where that is, it's the second last chapter in the Bible. Um, And I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we're looking at the book of Revelation. Um, If you've not spent much time reading Revelation, don't worry, it's this confusing for everyone. Um, Revelation is written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, and also three letters, one John, two John, three John. Um, And it's John describing, as best as language will allow, Um, a series of visions God gave him about the future and what's going on in the spiritual background. This passage in particular is about the end of this world. It's about after Jesus returns and it's about God coming down to dwell with man with a new heaven and a new earth. God sums it up best, as he always does, when he says, behold, I am making all things new. This is the dawn of the new creation that is the ultimate end of this world. And personally, I I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture because it's when everything comes together. The passage is the the end of the story that starts in Genesis 3 with humanity's fall in the garden. You could say that the ultimate goal of Jesus' death and resurrection is this passage. And that is by which I mean man finally being able to dwell with God again. If you remember the Garden of Eden, God dwells... spends time with man, he walks with Adam in the garden, and he hasn't been able to do that since the fall. And then back in Revelation, he's able to do it again. In the words of the great British pastor John Stott, no book of the New Testament bears a clearer or stronger testimony to Christ's victory than the Christian apocalypse, which we know as the book of Revelation. Uh, The Greek word for victory, it might be slightly differently translated in your Bibles. It's sometimes translated as to overcome. It's often translated as victory, but it's the Greek word uh, Nike, which is where the sports brand get their name from. 
Um, and that's the word for victory. And it's used, of all the times it's used in the Bible, more than half of those times is in the book of Revelation. And all of that culminates in this passage. And I particularly want to draw your attention to verse 7. Because in verse 7, God says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Or to put it another way, the one who conquers will inherit all of this. That is to say, everything that God talks about earlier in the passage, that the dwelling place of God is with man, he will wipe away every tear, neither shall there be mourning, nor, uh, nor crying, nor pain anymore, death shall be no more. God says, the one who conquers will inherit all of that. That's what the, <laughs> the ultimate inheritance is. And God actually talks to the one who conquers. It's a, the one who conquers, which is a weird phrase, but it's used a lot throughout the book. It's particularly used in the first three chapters. In the first three chapters of the book, um, Jesus speaks to seven specific churches in, um, in the ancient world, and they sort of have a fairly similar structure, which is uh, Jesus addresses the church, he encourages them or rebukes them, often both, gives them some instruction, and then ends with, to the one who conquers, I will give this. For example, the one who conquers will not fear the second death. And the one who conquers is a, bit, a little bit lost in translation. It doesn't make a huge amount of sense today. It's a little bit jargony, so I just want to explain it a little bit. Um, because it sounds quite an active thing, and to be honest, it sounds quite intimidating, doesn't it? It sounds quite intimidating to be told to go out and conquer. Like we haven't, the last person that I know of that was called a conqueror was in 1066 and it was the first king of England. I haven't heard anyone really be described as that since. Um, so it's quite important to realize before we go any further, before we really dig into this, that when the Bible uses that phrase, it isn't referring to us going out and doing something. It's not referring to us going out and doing something active. I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Um, many of you will know the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible, but just in case you don't, um, it is Israel versus Philistine. And I'm now looking like I don't need the crutch. Um, it's Israel versus Philistine in a war. And Goliath, their man mountain, again, it's the where we get the word Goliath from. He's described as, I believe, being nine foot tall. And he's standing there saying, anyone wants to fight me one-on-one, -on -one, that's... That's the battle, that's what we'll do. And no one in Israel is prepared to fight him. This was actually quite a common thing in ancient tribal warfare where what they would do is rather than have a big bloody battle, they would just have one person fight one person because generally what they wanted to do was absorb the other tribe and be twice the size. So that was quite common. So David steps up and with just the sling he happens to have, kills Goliath in one shot. Now, David beat Goliath in that fight. But what goes down in the history books, what goes down in the record books, is Israel beat Philistine. That's what it goes down as a nation beat another nation. And that is how the gospel works. God's representative, Jesus, beats Satan, sin and death. And because of that, we all are considered victorious because of it. In the story of David and Goliath, please never think of yourself as being David. You're not. You're someone in the Israelite army that happens to be standing there. That's what your role is. Jesus is David. And that's how, it, that's how our us as victorious and conquerors is done. It's, it's really important that we get this, that it is not some clever work of ours to be declared this. It's because of the work of Jesus. 
It's not about going out into the world, planting your flag in it. It's about knowing that Christ's conquering work is already done. So this inheritance, the inheritance that God talks about, the, the one that's due to the one who conquers, is due to all Christians just by virtue of accepting Christ as your saviour. Please hear me, when we talk about being victorious, we're not talking about, a be- I believe I can fly, I'm a wonderful snowflake self-esteem. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus' esteem is what we're talking about. Our inheritance in the future comes from Christ's work in the past, nothing we do in the present. So we have this inheritance earned by Christ, given to us, waiting for us, and God clearly believes it's important that we know we have this, partly because it's in the Bible, and God only puts things in the Bible he thinks we need to know, but also because he particularly emphasizes it. I don't know if you noticed that when I read out verses one to seven, but in verse five, God says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting where you're not really paying attention and someone goes, write write this down, you need to write this down, this is important. I can't really believe that's what's happening here. I can't really believe that John's sort of half there seeing the new heaven and the new earth, not really paying attention, and God's going, wait, John, John, I don't think that's what's happening. I think... God is wanting to emphasize these next verses. He's wanting to emphasize that he is the Alpha and the Omega, which, just to clap, also jargon, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, all it means is the beginning and the end. And he wants to emphasize that he will give water from the, sp- from the spring of the water of life to the thirsty. And he wants to emphasize those words because these words are trustworthy and true. Have you ever wondered why God revealed everything he did to John. I mean, John doesn't see it in his lifetime. He gets there, you know, he'll get there in the end, obviously, but in his lifetime, he's not going to see it. And we now know, looking back, that none of John's contemporaries saw it in their lifetime either. So why does God, sh- why does God share it with him? Why is God, does God think it's important for him to see this? The reality is God gives John this revelation of ultimate glorious victory for the same reason I'm talking to you about it right now, which is that he wants to bring hope to his people. Specifically, he wanted to bring hope for the future that would manifest itself in faith in the present. I'll give you an example. as, uh, many of you will have seen uh, will have seen episodes of The Simpsons. You should do. It's proper and right. Um, there is an episode where they do a flashback of just before Bart's born, and Homer and Marge have gone to see The Empire Strikes Back. And as they're walking out, there's this big queue of people queuing out to see the film. And as they're walking out, Homer strolls past and goes, "Wow, I can't believe that Darth Vader was Luke's father." And everyone in the queue just goes, "Oh." because the, f- the movie's been spoiled for them. And they've had the movie spoiled for them. And people, as a rule, don't really like spoilers, because when we see them, it ruins any suspense in the film, doesn't it? Or the TV show, or, or the, the, uh, the match, or whatever. It ruins any suspense, because there's no unsurety or uncertainty of what's going to happen. Well, that's exactly what God's trying to do. He's, trying to give, he's giving us the end of the story so that we don't live in fear of what's going on in the present. He gives us this hope because he wants us to hold on to it. He wants us to hold on to it because it is through the hope of the Lord that we can stand and that we can persevere. It's from the hope of God's promises that allow us to overcome our sin 
And furthermore, it's the hope of God's promises that allow us to fly in the face of our fears and take bigger risks. John Piper, who's a a great pastor and theologian that some of you may have heard of, he absolutely nails it when he puts it like this. If somebody falls out of an airplane with no parachute on and you don't have one either, you aren't going to jump out after them. It won't do any good. Two deaths are not better than one. But if you have a parachute on, you might just try one of those awesome rescue attempts and free fall like a bullet to catch the helpless and pull your cord. It's the hope of safety in the end that releases radical, sacrificial love now. Paul said in Colossians 1, 4-5, we have heard of the love you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's the assurance of the hope of heaven that releases the radical, risk-taking love that makes people look at your life, like Peter says, and ask for a reason that the hope is in you. What do those people see when they ask that? They see you jumping out of an airplane to save another person. So they say, hey, how can you jump out of the comfort and the safety of this airplane? And you answer, I have a parachute called the hope of glory. Let me show you what I mean. If you'd like to turn with me to uh, the book of Numbers, in specifically chapter 13, verse 25. We'll go into chapter 14 eventually. Uh, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, if you're not sure where it is. Um, And it's at this stage that the people of Israel who have left Egypt and been in exile, um, having been promised the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, it's at this point they arrive at Canaan. Moses has, at God's command, sent spies into Canaan to find out what opposition would be there and how easy it would be for Israel to settle there. And the spies come back and they give this report. At the end of 40 days, they returned for spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel into the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we come to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So we brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregations of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. The protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now, ignoring the great praise we must give to God that we don't live in a nation where if you disagree with people, they stone you to death. We, what, we have, what we have here is the difference between believing God's promises and the hope of victory and not. Put yourself in that position. You're going to invade this country and the spies come back and say their cities are massive, they're incredibly well fortified, oh, and by the way, everyone there's a giant. It's quite an understandable reaction to think, no, we can't, we, we can't take this. But practically, Israel haven't got a chance. But the people actually go further than that. In verse four, they say, let us choose, in verse four of chapter 14, sorry, they say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, you see, you should have laughed at that because that's funny. And it's not funny for Moses, but for us, it's funny because they're abandoning everything that God has for them. They've been promised the land of Canaan and they're abandoning it. Not only are they abandoning it, they are saying, we would rather be slaves in Egypt. They would rather return to Egypt and be at best be slaves because let's face it, the Pharaoh's not gonna take a slave rebellion very well. So if they return to Egypt, there's a good chance they're all gonna be killed. But they think it's better to do that. But not only that, not only have they forgotten everything God has for them in the future, they've forgotten what God did for them in the past. The only way that the Israelites crossed the desert to get here in the first place is because of the miraculous and unique provision of God. Israel as a people isn't living in the identity of the hope that comes from the victory of being the people of God. For some of you, this will be extremely familiar. Maybe God has made specific promises to you and you've stopped believing them. Or maybe you've just not held on to the promises that, that God gives to people in scripture. Maybe you still feel a slave to sin. Maybe you're still living in fear. And you, maybe you just don't feel like you can step out in what God's got for you. Well, let's look a little bit closer at Joshua and Caleb. When the scouts return, Jacob, Caleb is alone in saying, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we're able to, what? To overcome it. Later, when the whole people are giving up, Joshua stands up and says, do not fear the people of the land. They're bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the people's reaction is to stone him. What's different about Joshua and Caleb that gives them the faith to stand up alone against an entire nation and then a second nation when they want to take on Canaan? What's different about them is that they've claimed their victory in the Lord. They know that this Israel could take on five Canaans and win because the Lord is with them and their victory is never in question. Does it still feel like a risk? Yeah, of course it does. But their identity is not in their strength, it's in the Lord's strength. For many of you here, claiming victory in Christ is something you've never done or something you've never known you needed to do. But you must, must, claim it. It's an active claiming. You can't just simply remember that victory exists. You'll see when Israel is reminded by Joshua, they don't change their minds, they're simply angered and try to execute him. And incidentally, the execution is one that's saved for people who turn against the Lord, in a nice little bit of irony. Like all of our identity in Christ, like everything else we've talked about over these past months, like all of it, we have to claim it for ourselves and we have to put on our identity as victors. If you don't want to be like Hiro Onoda fighting a war that's over, you have to realize that Jesus has already won. 
Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that you will never have to struggle in life again. I'm not saying that life will be plain sailing after this. The Bible is very clear that the Christian life involves suffering. I'm not preaching that. What I'm saying is the only way you get through the suffering that is part of the Christian life is that you have to realize that it is light in comparison with eternity. You have to realize that any risk is nothing compared to the wonders that God has guaranteed he has in store for you if you persevere and realize that once and for all that you have that parachute called the hope of glory. I want to invite Jess and Em back up and I'm just going to pray in closing and um, just as we respond, uh, you might want to respond to this. Um, you might, might not, but you might want to respond to this. Um, if you want, if you want to receive prayer, please. Go, I'm happy to speak to you. Um, I'm happy to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you for this. But you might just want to actually take some time as we worship and, cl- and claim something for yourself. You might want to sit by yourself and claim that, and that's a good response. <laughs> it's something to be encouraged. Um, so please don't feel like you have to do some big outward response. It is okay to sit and claim response. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you make us victorious. We thank you that you make us um, co- more than conquerors in you. And Lord, we just pray that you will help us claim our victory. You'll help us claim the victory that you've given us. And we pray that you'll help us Uh, understand more what that means and you'll help us take those sacrificial risks and you'll help us overcome things that you have already overcome. Amen.